0: um, some of Paul's prayers and I think just especially applicable to where we are Um, right now coming out of 2020, crazy year year that none of us were anticipating and expecting um, with a number of just uh, um, seemingly negative things. Um, If you just sort of think through all that happened and um, so I think it would be just really helpful just as we begin this new year to sort of take a break, step back and, uh, and think about where we've been and and, and where we're going. Um, The world certainly isn't getting any better. Um, Christianity, especially, seems to be more and more marginalized, more and more opposed, especially in our our culture. Um, And none of what I'm saying this morning is to call us to be um, sort of careless about what's going on in our world. There's very important things happening um, in our society around us, in our culture around us, in the world around us, we should be informed, we should know about it, we should be involved to some extent. But the purpose this morning that that I really want to emphasize is that if we neglect the most important things, the priorities we are to be about, um, we will actually be put into a position where we're unable to influence those who are around us in any significant way. So the call is really to, to refocus our lenses for 2021 and not be so engrossed in all that's going on around us, important things, serious things, such that we would miss the main thing. Um, and that's, the, that's the call this morning. To put it another way, um, what were you most preoccupied with in 2020? And I think one of the best ways you can get an answer to that question is by examining your prayers. What did you pray for most consistently in 2020? What has been your prayer? Have we been praying for things that will not make a hill of beans one second after we enter into eternity? Or have we been praying for things and pursuing things that will matter five billion years from? What have we been praying for? So that's really the point of this lesson this morning, to refocus our lenses on God's values and God's priorities, um, especially centered around prayer. So I want to invite you this morning to look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll pass the outline out here. Um, One of Paul's prayers here. And it's uh, convicting uh, and uh, pretty hopeful at the same time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 3 through verse 12. 2 Thessalonians 3 through 12, chapter 1 through 12. In this prayer, Paul gives himself as a model for us to follow. He gives us a model for how we are to pray and a model for how we are to live. Paul is praying for these Thessalonians here. Because he is governed by God's priorities, God's values, God's priorities are at work in Paul's life. And that's why he's praying the way he is here. But he's also praying this way because he wants these believers now to be governed by these same priorities. He wants to model it and now he wants these priorities to become their priorities in their lives. And that's what he is, what he's after. Um, you can see on your outline, I've, I, I've entitled this whole passage "Worthy Priorities and Worthy Prayers." In verses three to ten, um, we get uh, Paul tells us the fundamental truths which undergird his prayers for these Thessalonians. In these verses, Paul's going to tell them the priorities that are driving his prayers for them. And then, verses eleven to twelve, Paul is going to tell the Thessalonians the purposes of his prayer. Um, That's really the main substance of his prayer. And then finally in 12b, he's going to give the grounds of his prayer. He's going to root everything in the grace of of God. Um, So three pretty clear sections. So let's begin at the, the first point there. The fundamental truths which undergird Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians in verses 3 to 10. Paul begins by giving thanks for God's grace in the lives of others. Look at verse 3. That God is the ultimate reason for everything else he's going to mention in this prayer. Look what he says. He says, we give thanks to God. He's giving thanks to God. And what is he giving thanks for? He mentions three things. He gives thanks for their increasing faith, their abounding love, and their endurance in the midst of persecution. But notice one thing. Paul is not thanking them. Who is he thanking He says, I give thanks to God. God." He gives thanks to God. Why? Because God is the one who's ultimately responsible here. God is the one who's responsible for every ounce of their faith, for every act of their love, and for every moment of their endurance. And he tells them that. He says, I give thanks to God. For these things in your life. The point is that any amount of spiritual fruit that we have in our lives must be traced back ultimately to God. I give thanks to God for these things in your life. Yes, perhaps you put forth great discipline and effort in your life and your sanctification, but the point is that even in and behind all those things, God is at work and responsible. At the end of the day, God stands behind it all. We have come this far by God's grace. And because that is the case, we can have confidence going forward. That's Philippians 1.6. God's at work in you, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete And that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's bringing their attention to God's grace at work in their lives. But notice one thing. Before we move on, notice what Paul's doing. He's not only giving thanks to God, but what is he doing? He's telling these Thessalonians about his thanksgiving to God. It is directed to God, and it's spoken to the Thessalonians. Paul models here for us what a person truly driven by God's priorities ought to look like. It is a person primarily concerned with the spiritual well-being of those around them. And this kind of person seeks the well-being of those around them by directing them back to God's grace at work in their lives. So so let's look at a couple implications here, and then I I think you'll get the the picture of what's what's going on. You can see on your outline, um, implication number one. What are we saying? What is Paul modeling here for us? Number one, we ought to be so enthralled with the work of grace, with God's work of grace in the lives of others, displayed in their love and their faith and their endurance, that thanksgiving for this fills our prayers. Let me ask you something. When was the last time in your personal private prayer you gave thanks to God for the spiritual growth you've observed in one another? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time I did that? tells you something about your priorities. And that's what Paul is modeling. It's a great indication of where our priorities are. When was the last time you thanked God for the spiritual growth of your brother and sister? Number two, we ought to be so enthralled with God's work of grace in the lives of others that we point it out to others. And that's what Paul's doing. He's not only giving thanks to God, he's now telling the Thessalonians about that. What an encouragement that must have been to the Thessalonians. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I see the grace of God at work in your life. What an encouragement to keep going and persevering. We need to grow in our concern for one another and be on the lookout for marks of grace in each other's lives. And then you tell them about it. Why? Why? Why tell them about it? Not to puff them up, not to make them think great about themselves, but why? In order to direct them back to God's grace, so that they too would give thanks for it, so that they too would continue to persevere, knowing that God is at work in their lives. So Paul has given us an excellent model here of what a person governed by God's priorities ought to look like. And notice, this is an ought to. Look at the very beginning of the verse. We ought. And then a few words later, as is what? Right. Right. This is not an option here, guys. These are priorities which must govern you as a believer. Genuinely thanking God in private for the growth you see in the lives of one another and then telling your brothers and sisters about the grace of God you've, you've observed in their lives. That's an ought to. But you can't do that if you don't know where one another is at. You can't know where one another is at if you haven't spent time with one another and haven't gotten to know one another. And you won't do any of those things if God's grace and work and values don't matter that much to you. So this verse is really convicting to me. and I think it ought to be to all of us. It's a massive diagnostic test as to whether or not you have God's priorities in your life. So that's what Paul's doing here. But all this is setting up us up for the prayer that he's going to pray. So this is the first thing that that's that just really undergirding everything is the grace of God at work in these believers. The next thing is Paul reminds them of the ultimate priorities in life, verses 5 through 10. So in verse 4, Paul, Paul's telling these believers that, that he's boasting about their faith in all the churches of God scattered abroad... Um, Using the Thessalonians as an encouragement, as a model for perseverance for other churches. But now Paul wants to remind them of what these Thessalonians already know. Um, He wants to remind them about why they are suffering, why they are enduring. Um, He's reminding them about the priorities that they have had up to this point. So that they would continue to have these priorities in their lives. And the first one he gives is in verse 5. And it's the priority of being counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. The kingdom of God is the final culmination of God's purposes. Um, It's what God has promised believers. Mm -hmm. It begins at the return of Christ, and it culminates in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, This is it. This is what believers have been promised. It's what we're looking for. Um, And really, when we talk about the kingdom, we are talking about eschatology, right? And that's what this passage is about. That's what most of the book of 2 Thessalonians is about. But it's very different from how we usually think of eschatology. As soon as I say that word, your mind probably goes to... um, Charts into uh, discussions into debates into different systems, and eschatology is sort of this very esoteric discussion that belongs to the seminary classroom. But it's not that way at all for Paul. Eschatology, the expectation of the end, the return of Christ, is absolutely essential for your life here. That's what Paul tells us. You need eschatology. You need a life that is focused on and anticipating the end times. The return of Christ. These truths are so essential for us as believers. Our lives should be controlled by an expectation of the return of Christ. And that's why Paul brings the kingdom up here. Paul reminds these believers that they are suffering and enduring all of this in order to be counted worthy of the kingdom. Now, what does that mean, be counted worthy of the kingdom? Well, certainly it doesn't mean that they are going to deserve the kingdom um, at some point in their life. It will always be great, so we're never going to come to a point where we deserve anything um, from God. It simply means that their perseverance in the faith in the midst of suffering demonstrates that the kingdom is really theirs. Um, Perseverance in the faith is God's appointed pathway. It's how one demonstrates that he is worthy of attaining the the kingdom. It's what demarcates. It it separates him from those who are not going to enter the kingdom, which is why Paul begins like he does in verse 5. Look at how he begins. This is evidence. Your perseverance by faith in suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God on those who do not have that kind of faith. And it's evidence demonstrating your worthiness to attain the kingdom. They are enduring much hardship because they refuse to let go of their faith in Christ who promised them the kingdom. And therefore, they'll be reckoned worthy of the kingdom because of their enduring faith. In other words, this is the main priority that Paul is about, the kingdom, the coming kingdom, entering the kingdom, being found worthy of the kingdom. That's the priority that is governing Paul. That's the priority that ought to be governing Paul. Our lives. That's what matters. That's what really matters. But look at the next priority in verses 6 to 10. Not just the priority of being counted kind of worthy of the kingdom, but there's the priority of God's righteous retribution. Look at verse 6. It says, since it is right or righteous before God to repay. That's retribution language. Repay, payback. Being counted, the wor- being counted worthy of the kingdom energizes faith. And also now, Paul says, that expecting God's righteous retribution also energizes endurance. It was the foundation on which these people endured. In other words, the coming judgment is a central priority. We must not forget it. And Paul spends um, several verses here, verses 6 through 10, talking about it. So let me go really quickly through these verses, and then we're going to come to the meat of the prayer, which is what we're after. Um, He gives us two cycles here, um, in verses 6 through 7 and then verses 8 to 10, which describes God's judgment, his retribution, and then the timing of it. You can see it. It happens in in two cycles. So look at the first one, verses 6 through 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So look at these reversals that that's going to happen. There will be a reversal for those causing suffering. Paul says tribulation for those causing tribulation. And there's going to be a reversal for those Christians who are suffering. Paul says to you who have suffered tribulation, there will be rest. Along with us. In other words, things are not always going to be the way they are now. Those who have faithfully trusted Christ and have suffered for it will be rewarded the kingdom, and everybody else will be rewarded with wrath and judgment. When? When is that going to happen, Michael? Paul? Paul says, When the revelation of Christ, at the revelation of Christ, when the Lord Jesus is revealed at his second coming. And that really prepares us for this second cycle now in verses 8 through 10. Which really now just amplify what he's just spoken. It's unpacking it a bit more. Verse 8 gives us a clearer picture of this retribution. Look at verse 8. It says he's going to come inflicting vengeance. The idea is vindication on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. (coughs) Believers are going to be shown to have been right, and everybody else will be shown to have been wrong. We often hear, especially in our progressive society, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Have you all ever heard that before? Especially like very progressive movements, LGBT and... Well, we don't want to be thought of in 100 years from now as being on the wrong side of history. We need to be, you know, in with, with, with where society is going. Paul's saying you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But you have to be looking from the perspective of the second coming. That is what's going to matter. That is the history that's going to matter. And believers, Paul says, are going to be shown to have been on the right side of history. Although all through this life, they're going to be maligned. And it's going to look like you're not. You're going to be vindicated. proven. To have been right—that's um, a priority that ought to be driving your life. Paul says that he will come and inflict vengeance, vindication on who? Look at this. Look at this audience. It's all unbelievers. It's not just those really bad persecutors out there. It's unbelievers. And man, I wish I had a lesson just to spend on unpacking this description. Look what he says: on those who do not know God. And who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? If you're not a Christian, that's what you are. You don't know God. And you don't obey the gospel. And he says, which ones will pay the penalty? Eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. And then verse 10, he gives us the timing again. When he comes. When Christ comes. And when Christ comes, what's going to happen? Believers are going to have two privileges. Look what they are. What are these two privileges? Believers will be able to glorify Christ, and they will marvel at Christ. They won't be consumed with fire. They will glorify him, and they will marvel at him. In verse 10. In other words, guys, this is what matters. Paul spends this many verses talking about these priorities. This is what matters. From this point of view, the only things in this life that matter are things which will enable us to bring glory to Christ at his return, which will usher us into the kingdom, and which will magnify Christ at his return. That's what matters, Paul says. And that's what we need to be living in light of. Which prepares us exactly now for verses 11 to 12, his prayer. The main substance of his prayer. The purposes of his prayer for the Thessalonians are in verses 11 through 12. Look at how he begins, verse 11. He says, to this end, or to this goal, or literally, unto which thing we pray. Well, what thing? What end, Paul? What goal? Well, the answer is what he's just finished talking about, verses three through ten. Okay? In other words, the things he's praying about now in verses eleven through twelve are all governed by, they're all aiming at the priorities he's just described in verses three to ten. He is praying verses 11 to 12 with the goal that verses 3 to 10, what he just talked about, would happen in your life. So if you have these priorities here, you're going to pray these values. You're going to pray these prayers in verses 11 to 12. What is that? That they would endure in faith. That they would grow in grace. That they would be counted worthy of the kingdom. And that they would bring glory to Christ at his return. So Paul has now just given us all of his priorities, all the things that matter, and now he's going to show you how do you pray for those things. What does it look like to pray for these? And that's what we get. First thing he gives us is his immediate purpose in verse 11. Let's read it. To this end, we always pray for you so that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. By his power. Paul prays for two things here. He prays so that God would count them worthy of his calling. Now, what does that mean, being counted worthy of his calling? It's very similar to what we just said worthy of the kingdom. God's calling in Paul's letters, um, you're probably familiar with it, always refers to an effectual call. It's not a general invitation to the gospel. It's always God's decisive work in an individual to bring them to faith to Christ. If you're a believer, it's because God called you. He made you alive. He brought you to Christ. He gave you salvation. He made you a part of his people. You are called if you're a believer. And here Paul says that he's praying that God would make them to be counted worthy of his calling. So again, this doesn't mean that you're going to ever be deserving of being called. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that he's praying that believers would now live like it. That they would have lives that would rise to the level which would accord with the magnificence and wonder of being God's people. You have been called, Paul is saying. Now, live to the level that aligns with that. That accords with the wonder of being a saved, chosen, called out person. That's a magnificent thing to be a believer because you're going to get everything that we just talked about. Now live like it, Paul it. Live a life that reflects the magnificence of that position you have in Christ. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, certainly none of us was worthy when we received God's calling now, however, Paul wants us to become what we were not. And he prays to that end. He prays that Christians might become worthy of all that it means to be a Christian. Of all that it means to be a child of the living God. Of all that it means to be worthy of the love that brought Jesus to the cross. So this is what we must strive for. But remember, look what, what is Paul doing? He is praying for this. He is praying to God for this. In other words, as Paul said back in verse 3, God is the one who must so work in our lives such that we would live a life worthy of his calling. Paul is praying this because he's constrained by the priorities he's just given, and he knows God must do something if we are to live a life worthy of the call. So let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed this prayer for yourself? Pray this prayer for, for others. Or have our prayers been earthly, small, myopic, self-centered? Or have I been focused on, in my life and others' lives, on having a life that reflects the magnificence of being one who's been called by God? That's the first thing Paul prays. The next thing Paul prays is that God would cause their renewed desires to bear fruit. He now moves on to his second request, which really fleshes out the first. Um, how would they be counted worthy of God's calling? It would be as they live lives of holiness, faith, love, and good works. And for this, he, he looks to, to God's working. Look what he says. He says, so that God would fulfill, and then at the end of the verse, by his God is the one that must do this. God is the one that must bring these things to fruition. Now, what things? He gives two. Two things here. Number one, literally every desire or resolve for goodness and every work of faith. Believers are people who have renewed desires. Um, If you're a Christian... You're strange unto the world. You desire strange things, gloriously strange things, things that God desires. You have renewed desires, a desire for holiness, a desire for good works, a desire for love for other believers, things that the world does not have. You have genuine faith towards God, and you have desires um, for things that God desires. And these desires in this faith ought to produce fruit. It ought to produce works in your life. As believers who've been called, we have new desires, and these desires should be bearing fruit. And these, these works are going to be as various as people are various. As your unique situation and your unique personality and your unique place is, 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 is various. In other words... You may have a desire um, in your life, where you're at, to be more proactive in discipleship at your church, to show more hospitality to to others, perhaps a desire to help one another in the Sunday school class with practical needs they have, or to share the gospel with that co-worker um, or that neighbor down the street. Maybe it's to pray for others more faithfully. That New Year, this is the time we talk about resolves. This is one of the reasons I went to this passage. It talks about resolves, purposes, desires that we have for good things, right? If you're a believer, you have those, and you ought to be having those. And as good as that is, it is incomplete. That's what Paul is saying. It's incomplete. You have those desires. You, you, you know what you need to be do- doing, but you resolve and your desire must not stop there it must continue to the point of action. And that is what Paul is praying for. He prays that God would now so work in these believers' lives such that these new God-centered desires would end in action, that they would not come up short of actually bearing fruit. That's what he is praying for. Again, D.A. Carson says, The truth is that unless God works in us and through us, Unless God empowers these good purposes of ours, they will not engender any enduring spiritual fruit. They will not display any life-transforming, people-changing power. In other words, if we are to act on the faith-filled purposes and good desires of ours, we must have God's power at work in us. And that's what Paul is praying for. God, let the desires not fall short of being fulfilled and actual fruit and actual action question is why? Why is Paul praying that? Well, his priorities, right? Verses 3 to 10. This is the only thing that's going to matter. This is the only thing that's going to matter when Christ returns. So before we move on, let me ask you. What are some of those purposes or resolves that you need to make? Or that you have made and that you need to follow up on? What opportunities do you have before you? Where is good desire? come up short of action. What are those resolves you need to make for 2021? Um, New Year's resolutions are not um, simply a worldly thing. They are if they're separated from Christ and the Spirit of God, but you should be making resolves for holiness and good works. The call is to look to God for strength and then get busy by faith. This is also what we must be praying for one another. Um, Our prayers Yes, they they, they deal with the the, the situations of this life, our health and our suffering and wherever we're at, but they must always ascend above those things to have this as the goal. God, in the suffering this person is in right now, the the physical health, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would fulfill their resolves for good where they're at, that they would bear fruit for Christ at his coming. That's the kind of prayers we need to be praying for one another. Well, Paul is not finished. Look at verse 12 now. He gives us now his ultimate purpose. What is the ultimate goal of these good works and the faith-filled fruit of believers? Um, Where is it going? Paul gives it to us in this verse. Look at verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. The ultimate purpose is that Christ... Will be glorified. Literally, the name, the person, the being, the character of the Lord Jesus would be glorified. Look back up in verse 10 where we were. It says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Now, how is that going to happen? How will Christ be glorified in his saints when he returns? Paul tells us it will be through their lives of good works, in the midst of suffering. Flowing from faith and confidence in the character of Christ. Growing in the soil of God's grace and work in them. That's how Christ is going to be glorified. In other words, Paul is praying that Christ would be glorified at his return. By the works and fruit, producing the life for no other reason than God's grace in you and your confidence in the person of Christ. You see, unless our resolves of goodness rise to this level, um, they'll be insufficient. Why do we want to share the gospel with that coworker? Why do we want to get more involved at the church? Why do we want to bear more fruit of love? If it is only so that I would be looked at as a bit more spiritual, or a bit more of a mature person, or, hey, he's a godly person, or look at Michael, Paul says, you failed the test. That is not the purpose. And if we're honest, I think most of our good works in there um, most of it's centered upon me. Look at me. Paul is praying that the end goal must be that Christ would be magnified. Christ would be glorified. That any and all good works we do are done in dependence on him to highlight the grace of God. But he isn't finished. Look again. It's that Christ would be glorified in you. and what? And you would be glorified in him. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for a believer to be glorified? Well, the answer is that we're glorified in a different way. Um, we don't glorify Christ by giving him anything, right? How do we glorify Christ? Um, I remember an illustration John Piper gave many years ago. said we don't glorify Christ like a magnifying glass, by making something really small to appear bigger than it really is, okay? That's not how we glorify Christ. We glorify Christ like a telescope. Something that is massively glorious and through our lives, whatever we do, to make it look more like it really is. It looks small, but it's not small. It's massively glorious. Our lives, our job is to, to show and display how glorious it really is. That's what it means to glorify Christ. We don't give him anything. But a believer's glorification, we do get something. This is nothing else than the glorification of a believer at the return of Christ a resurrection body, being transformed to be in the image of Christ when he returns. That is the end goal of your life of faith, of your life of love, being counted worthy of the kingdom. It's that Christ to be glorified, and the end goal is that you would be glorified, transformed in him. That's where everything is going right now. And if that's not enough, look how Paul finishes at the very end of verse 12. He now gives us the ground of his prayer. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends where he began, with the grace of God, with the work of God in your life. This is what must happen if you are going to bear any fruit. And why is Christ going to be glorified? Because it's his grace. Because he's the giver. The giver gets the glory. He's the one that did. And when we are conscious of this, when this becomes our priority, we will seek to display his worth and grace in all that we do. So that's Paul's prayer and really his priorities. And it really comes as a conviction um, to me and I I hope to you as as well. And before I close with some sort of implication questions and summary points just to really drive it home and help us think about this coming year, how we're going to how we're going to live and how we're going to pray. Um, just ask you: Is there any questions, any comments on what we've seen here um, before we wrap it up? Yeah, I have a question. Something that came to my mind when you were going through verses six through ten. He mm-hmm. seems to spend a lot of time on. Um, I don't know if you can call it interpretation, but mm-hmm. you know, just almost taking comfort in. Yeah. God inflicting vengeance yeah. on and you know, upholding his justice and I yeah. understand that. But how do you balance that, especially in the new covenant, with the commands? We shouldn't delight to see someone's soul permanently destroyed. Yeah. Right? I mean it gives us comfort that God's gonna take retribution, but yeah. How do you balance that? Because obviously we, we have part from yep. believers, and we don't want to just say, oh, in the judgment, we're going to be fine. They're not, yep. and I take comfort in that. I, I just struggle with how yep. the implications of that. Yep. So there, there's a number of things going on there. So I would say you hold both of those at the same time. Um, when you read the book of Revelation, it's incredible. There is celebration going on in heaven because of the wrath of God consuming up and like one of the most horrific scenes of judgment is coupled with celebrations. And so it's just a, it's a weight that you've you got to be careful because we, we, we're not desiring the, 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 the suffering of others. We, we long for them in salvation, and that, that's part of the good works and the faith that we're to be about. And at the same time, it is that, that justice will be served one day. Accounts will be settled. That gives you great comfort to endure. And so I guess it's the application that you've got to be careful of. Both truths you hold at the same time, but we're not free to make application of those truths in any way we want, right? So <laughs> we have the truth of the justice of God, and we make application to the fact that we can have comfort in that. And then we have the truth of the gospel of God, and we make application by um, you know, we'll probably by this, sharing with others. So, probably yeah. Probably uh, along with that, is the celebration comes from the destruction of sin? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it does. It does because the uh, God's purposes are fulfilled. His glory is not being despised, and, and all that. But at the same time, there is the element of satisfaction, vindication. That the tables are now turned. Um, and uh, I think it's just a theme that we're uneasy about going to. That the Bible is a bit more comfortable um, on. And at the same time, I think it's something that we need to be careful lest we drift into genuine desire for the for the destruction of others. So I think it's a, a life coupled with I long for your salvation, and at the same time I rest in the vindication of God, which will prove believers right. And it also causes us to do what? Magnify the grace of God, because if it was not for the grace of God, I am right there as well. I and mean, That's why for eternity it's going to be to the grace and mercy of, of God. At the same time, as we celebrate His vindication and judgment on on those who didn't get it right, and we got it right. Well why? Because <clears> of <throat> the grace of God. So uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a really, really good question. Good. Any thoughts? Any questions? So let me just finish here, uh, one minute ask you, when was the last time you prayed like this for yourself, for your family, for your Sunday school, for your church, for your pastors? When was the last time you gave thanks for the grace of God that you observed in, in, in those around you? When was the last time you pointed out that grace to those who were around you, for their encouragement? When was the last time you specifically prayed that in whatever circumstance one is in, God would so work in them that they would be counted worthy of the calling they've received and that their desires would result in actual fruit. When was the last time you prayed that? When was the last time you grounded your prayers in the ultimate goal that Christ would be glorified and that believers would be glorified in Him? When was the last time you prayed for another person to persevere in the faith so that they would be glorified at Christ's return? When was the last time that you were consciously aware that any answer to your prayer was grounded in the grace of God? Paul is coming to us um, from an otherworldly perspective. And man, as I've gone through 2020, I, I, I confess, I've gotten caught up in coronavirus and all the political corruption with that, and the election, and all these things important things that you need to be aware of. But if we neglect this, we have neglected the main thing. If your answer is like mine to these questions, which um, it's not very often, um, the fundamental problem is that we have misplaced priorities. We fail to live in light of eternity. We failed to live with eyes set on expectation for Christ's return. We've subtly believed the lie that what matters is the here and now. Um, last thing I want to point out is what are those desires? What are those resolves for good that you have or that you need to make for this coming year? That maybe you have and you've fallen short of action. Where is it? You'll do it by God's grace and strength to you. It's true. But you'll never do it until these eternal priorities become your own. So the call this morning is a call um, for repentance and it's a call for renewed focus. And That we have focus our lenses on what matters. The return of Christ. He's coming. He is coming. And the only thing that's going to matter is what was done out of faith for him and love for others. There's um, a Famous sentence, you've heard it, I'm sure. Only one life will, will soon be passed, and only what is done for Christ will last. That's it, guys. That's 2021. Let's, let's aim for that. Um, as a class in one another and in our prayers uh, for each other. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. I confess worldliness focus on this life, focus on this world, neglecting Christ, neglecting the grace of God, neglecting the glory of Christ. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to have resolves for good and then by your grace and power follow through to produce fruit, depending on your grace, seeking the glory of Christ, growing in faith and love and endurance, knowing that he's coming, We long for that and we long for his glory because of the great grace and love that you've shown to us. Father, I love you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Will you cause us to be counted worthy of your calling? Prepare us for the service ahead that we would receive your truth with submission and give thanks to you with hearts filled with joy. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Alright guys, have a great Sunday and I hope to see you men Saturday morning for our for the book study. Happy New Year.